Well, this morning we're in Galatians 1 again, specifically verses 11 through 24. Um, yeah, page 972, if you have the Pew Bibles. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles, except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. You can be seated as I pray. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word, which gives life. We ask today that you would give us eyes to see your gospel in all of its power and beauty and that you'd give us ears to hear from your spirit if there's any, any other thing that we're centering our life on. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. My goal today is fairly simple. It's to convince you to trust the good news about Jesus that was preached by Paul. Because it's not a man-made philosophy. Rather, it's the only authentic saving message from God. And if you recall where we're at in the flow of chapter 1, Paul is explaining why he doesn't care about pleasing men. He says in verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. So because the content of his ministry is not from men, therefore Paul doesn't really care what people think of him. And in this section that we're studying today, Paul is going to go out of his way to revisit what it was like when his gospel came to him, um, and he's going to tell his own story. As he does that, we're going to see four things about God's gospel. Four things about God's gospel. If you're taking notes, here's my outline. It's four C's. So the letter C, four times. God's gospel, one, comes from God. Two, God's gospel causes transformation. Three, 
God's gospel conforms to no group. And four, God's gospel creates celebration. But before we go there, let me just ask, why do we care? Last week, James shared the memorable example of a family that had saved up and purchased uh, tickets to a World Series baseball game, but they happened to be counterfeit tickets. And when you've spent the thousands of dollars and you've shown up at the gate to the stadium, it's too late to discover the truth. How much more so when it's not a game, but it's acceptance before God that we're talking about. I want to give you another picture like that uh, that I heard from a British preacher because I think it's really important for us to understand why Paul is so worked up in this section. If you remember, he, he's really worked up in chapter 1. He, he even tells them, look, if anyone's telling you a different message, let that person be cursed. So why is Paul so worked up? Well, imagine that a young boy is visiting his grandmother's house. And he comes across an interesting box on the kitchen counter that has funny little compartments. Now, the last time he visited his grandma, she gave him some delicious chocolate candy. So he assumes that this box full of little colorful items must be more of them. Actually, he's opened one of those seven-day pill boxes containing doses of the grandmother's heart medicine. And the doctor warned her to be careful never to take more than one per day or it could kill her. Now, if the grandmother comes across the grandson about to pop a handful of these pills into his mouth, how do you think she should respond? What should she say? Should she say, well, that's okay. You know, he, he really does believe that it's candy, and I don't want to be judgmental and dogmatic. Really, I should be tolerant toward my grandson because... Well, he's simply chosen to build his life around a different perceived reality than I have. No, of course not. She screams, she runs, she slaps those pills out of his hand because his belief that this is candy is not the truth. It's just man-made wishful thinking that leads to death in the end. And as James has said, we all have a gospel of one sort or another. I found it interesting that an ad on my favorite radio station this week, um, they, they said that they exist to faithfully spread the gospel of jazz in Toronto and beyond. Sure, they were just hijacking Christian jargon and, and trying to be clever. Uh, I get it. But uh, it does show that we all do have a gospel. And the good news or the gospel that we choose to build our lives around is a matter of life and death. And that's why we're being so persistent that there's only one accurate way to order our lives, and that's to grab hold of the mercy that God grants through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. He took our sin upon himself, and he suffered the penalty we earned. He gives us his blameless life as a gift to all who turn to him and believe. But if you change this good news message even just a little bit, if you just shifted and it becomes syncretistic with other messages, it not only has no power to save, it actually can deceive and damn. And that's why Paul is going to tell us his story, to be crystal clear that his gospel is not from man, but is the very truth of God. Now, the first way that Paul shows us he has God's true gospel is by telling us that its source was God himself. It came from God 
There's your first C. It came from God. And we see this in, in verse 12. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. What's he talking about? A revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, if you're not familiar with the story of the Apostle Paul, this is probably a good time to revisit it. Because he's the only one of the apostles who didn't follow Jesus during the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. Instead, Paul was actually an early and violent opponent of Christianity. I'll read his account of what happened from Acts 26. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul actually saw and spoke with Jesus. As he says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. So Paul's reminding the Galatians about his conversion experience even though there are these false teachers in their midst who are um, trying to discredit Paul and they're trying to add these man-made rules to the Christian gospel, the Galatians can trust Paul's pure gospel because its source was God himself who gave Paul a revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's important, too, for us to remember that Paul received his message directly from the risen Christ because it's very popular among some so-called Christians to sort of pit Paul against Jesus. Uh, there's all sorts of ways people try to pick and choose which parts of the New Testament that they can embrace because they see Jesus as, as loving and inclusive and then Paul as somehow distorting that. And to this we can say two things. First, that these people need to read all of the words of Jesus and then they would discover that Jesus too hates sin and Jesus too calls people to whole life change through the power of his gospel. 
But secondly, we see in this passage and others that Paul got his gospel directly from Jesus. So the first generation of Christians came to see this clearly, and and they discerned total harmony between the theology of the gospels and the theology of Paul. And we'll see that there's that unity also if we'll actually take the time to listen to what they're saying. So is that it then? Is it... um, you know, because this gospel came from God, is, am I just saying trust the gospel that was revealed by God to a guy 2,000 years ago? Well, I'm certainly not saying anything less than that. But also, we should realize from verse 12 that in some way, the gospel comes to us in a similar manner. Wherever the true gospel is embraced, there's a direct from Godness in how it's received. Now, we haven't received a a blinding vision of Jesus like Paul, but just like was the case for Paul, there's nothing man-made going on when we repent and believe. A supernatural grasp was given to us. The eyes of our hearts were illuminated. And so Paul speaks of all Christian conversions in a pattern that follows his own. It happens not as we witness physically the resurrected Christ, but as we interact with the inspired writings of the first witnesses. In Scripture, we too can hear the words of Christ. And His Spirit can confront us and directly apply the words of Jesus as directly and as as definitely as if they were audible. Scott, Scott, why are you walking as my enemy? I am Jesus, fully God and fully man, the only one able to join heaven and earth. I've died to bring you to the Father, and I live to reign and to share my resurrection power through my spirit. From this day on, you will find your life in me alone. And Paul describes this common experience for all believers in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, in one sense, our hearing of the gospel did come from men. We may have heard from a parent, a babysitter, a radio preacher, a co-worker. But then there was something supernatural that happened to illuminate those words, to make them real and palatable to us. Every true convert can relate to this. Or for some of you, that experience may be just around the corner. And I want to be clear what I'm not saying. I am not trying to universalize Paul's experience as if his conversion wasn't unique. It was. I mean, the experience of Christ for the apostles is not repeatable. We have not walked with Jesus. We have not physically seen him and spoken with him. But the gospel that they experienced is completely the same as the gospel we experience. And one of the marks of this gospel is that it's revealed by God and not men. Just as God turned the lights on for the Apostle Paul, so also he does for us as well. Charles Wesley wrote these lyrics to describe the experience. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. 
You see, God's gospel is always received through a supernatural revelation of Jesus Christ. You can trust this message because that's how Paul received it. And if you do come to trust it yourself in a saving way, it will not be because man convinced you of it, but because you will have had a supernatural experience where Jesus made himself known to you as well. As one theologian put it, all Christians are victims of a successful surprise attack by God. And it may not be dramatic. You may not even know exactly when it happened. But you'll find yourself forever changed. And the gospel that comes this way is the only gospel that Paul cares about defending. The second way that Paul proves that his gospel is not a human invention is by reminding the Galatians of how it changed his life. God's gospel causes the transformation of human lives. It causes transformation. In verses 13 to 15, uh, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. It's interesting. uh, Paul thought that he was basing his life around God's saving message, didn't he? But in hindsight, he was merely clinging to man-made traditions. I wonder if there are any zealous ones here today in the same boat. Sadly, it's possible to go to church our whole lives and still think that God accepts us because of how we do things in religious ways. But it doesn't work. You know that, right? It doesn't matter how many prayer meetings you attend, how many Bible studies you lead, how many Christian friends or family members you have, how much you've given to the church. If you're basing your life around tradition and not Jesus himself, it won't make you more holy. In fact, it'll make you less holy because you're living to try to convince yourself of God's pleasure and trying to meet the expectations of others. So you'll grow in frustration, in bitterness, anger, jealousy, slander, and eventually it'll lead you to act out in other ways too. You know, the title for our series is How Works-Based Religion Torpedoes Love. And if you're trying to prove your merit through what you do, you will not love people. Just like pre-conversion Paul, you'll think you're doing God a service by making life miserable for those who do cling only to the good news of Christ. Do you suspect that any of this may describe you? If so, don't silence that voice of the Holy Spirit but let it convict you to the full in order that you might find freedom from self-righteousness. You'll be in really good company. The great reformer Martin Luther considered himself to have been trapped like this for many years. He wrote, Outwardly, I was not as other men, extortioners, unjust, sexually immoral, but I kept chastity, poverty, obedience, Moreover, I was only given to fasting, watching, praying, attending church, and the like. Notwithstanding, in the meantime, I fostered under this cloaked holiness and trust in my own righteousness, a continual mistrust, doubtfulness, fear, hatred, blasphemy against God. And this, my righteousness, was nothing else but a filthy puddle. 
For Satan loves such saints and counts them for his dear darlings who destroy their own bodies and souls and deprive themselves of all the blessings of God's gifts. In the meantime, wickedness, blindness, contempt of God, and the abuse of all his gifts do reign in them at the full. To conclude, such saints are therefore driven to think, speak, and do whatever Satan wills, although outwardly they seem to excel beyond all others in good works, in holiness, and strictness of life. Luther paints a dark reality, doesn't he? And that's why the Apostle Paul elsewhere writes that all his good deeds and holy posturing were absolute rubbish, and he'd gladly quit them all in order that he might gain Christ and be found in him, clothed in his righteousness, not in the achievement of man-made benchmarks of his own design. Friend, even if you've been attending this or another church your whole life, please don't miss this opportunity for self-examination. Are there ways in which self-righteousness has reached its tentacles into your life and subtly become your defining reality? Ways in which you approach the world with smugness and dismiss those who don't measure up. Or maybe you approach the world with fear of not measuring up and jealousy of those who seem to have it together. That just shows that you're trying to be self-righteous but feel like you're failing. And the answer for both is to give up these attempts to prove yourself. There is a world of joy and peace just around the corner if you'll do that. I'd encourage you to confess this struggle to another brother or sister and ask them to pray with you that you'd be able to live by God's gospel alone. Paul goes on in the next verse to describe how he changed from living as a man-pleaser, striving to fulfill human traditions, and he became a God-pleaser, finding his acceptance, his meaning, his worth, his righteousness only in the favor that God gave him through Jesus. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles... And he says, I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Everything changed for Paul when God was pleased to reveal his son to him. But here Paul also shows us that the transformation in his life was a pre-planned gift from God. He speaks of being called by his grace. This was something that the sovereign God had planned before Paul was born, setting him apart in a unique way that makes us think of Jeremiah the prophet or John the Baptist. Now, you and I, of course, we're not set apart in quite that same way. But we are in a broader sense because Scripture speaks of all believers as predestined and called that we might be justified and in the end glorified together with Christ. And this shift in our identity, it doesn't make us apostles, but it does make us part of a kingdom of priests now set apart to represent God in this world. Wow, that's quite a transformation. And when we see lives that are changed in that way, it certainly confirms that this can only be God's gospel, doesn't it? I mean, do you realize that only God's gospel has consistently changed lives in this way down through the centuries, transforming violent power mongers into gentle servants of the poor, turning self-reliant business tycoons into suffering missionaries, changing Buddhist monks and Islamic jihadists 
into Christian teachers and apologists. It grabs a hold of those who are living for sex and drugs and pleasure at all costs, and it forms them into pure and wise mothers, fathers, sisters, and brothers. He takes the dishonest, the arrogant, the greedy, the perpetually angry, and makes him or her a loving neighbor, a faithful employee, a source of true joy to friends and strangers alike. This is the power of God through his gospel. And it's all his supernatural gift. We can't contribute to it one ounce. People can't be preconditioned to be Christians. Christian faith is not the natural outcome of Christian parenting. It's the supernatural outcome of God's illumination. Even kids from Christian homes must be born again. So the good news is that today, if you think that you're far from Christ, all these things are new to you. You're the least likely to become a Christian. Good. I'm glad you're here. Maybe you've been fighting God. Maybe you've hated his people the way the Apostle Paul did before his conversion. Or maybe you're just apathetic. But my prayer is that Jesus would come for you today. That your life would be transformed by God's gospel. The one message that has lasting power to do it. Verse 16 says that Paul went away into Arabia and then Damascus. What was he doing there? Well, from 2 Corinthians 11, we know that in Damascus, Paul himself got a taste of the persecution that he formerly doled out to Christians because the governor was trying to arrest Paul, but he was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped. So we see from that 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 Paul had immediately begun preaching the gospel that had transformed him. And that's important, as we'll see, because Paul goes on to show us our third point, that God's gospel conforms to no group. God's gospel doesn't conform. It's not the product of peer pressure, indoctrination, popular thought. Picking up in verse 16, it says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. And here we're getting our clearest clue that Paul is answering an accusation from his opponents. His opponents might have been saying something like, you know, Paul is just a second-hander regarding Jesus. Paul, he learned his gospel from the original apostles just like we did. Only we, we got it straight and he messed it up by not requiring his congregations to keep the Jewish laws. Things like circumcision, the strict observance of festivals, and eating only kosher food. Paul just dropped those important things. And, and so we've come to Galatia to set the record straight and make sure that you converts are submitting to circumcision so that you'll have the whole gospel. That may have been what it was like, but Paul was Paul a second-hander? And is that what Paul's gospel is? Was it just a philosophy that he stole from others and then messed up and, or put his personal stamp on it? His opponents were claiming that they more faithfully reflected the thinking of the Jerusalem church. And Paul, his response is, well, even if that were true, I wouldn't care. 
because I didn't go to them to get my gospel. As we already saw, he went off by himself, and he started preaching Christ without any input from the original 12 apostles. When he finally did go to Jerusalem, he was just there for 15 days, not enough time to learn at the apostles' feet or be instructed through some sort of training program. He only saw Cephas, that's the Aramaic version of the Greek name Peter, and he saw James, the half-brother of Jesus. You know, likely it was a rich time of mutually sharing experiences of Jesus, Paul telling them about his dramatic conversion, how he saw Jesus on the road and spoke with him and, and received this unprecedented call to ministry. And then Peter and James probably shared with Paul memories of theirs, of, of words Jesus had spoken, things Jesus had done during his earthly ministry. They could share from their firsthand memories. Probably all three left mutually encouraged for the hard work ahead. But Paul only saw these two men. And it's so important to his argument that Paul even inserts a legal oath here, insisting that he is not lying. So first of all, we should note that this whole assumption of Paul's opponents was wrong. They didn't understand that the original apostles and Paul were teaching the same thing, even though the original 12 were still working for the most part within a Jewish context. And this unity between Paul and the other apostles, it'll become a little bit clearer in the next chapter, but even more so if you want to look at Acts chapter 15 when you get home. There was really no doctrinal disagreement between Paul and the other apostles. So by saying that they themselves represent the the views of the original apostles better than Paul, these guys are really just exposing themselves as frauds. But that's not even where Paul focuses his attention. He doesn't get into that fight. Instead, he says, well, even if it were true that the other apostles had taught something different, that still doesn't mean that I'm the one who got it wrong. Because, see, I didn't get my gospel from them in the first place. I did not immediately consult with anyone. What he's getting at is that his lack of early contact with the first church leaders, it it shows something about the gospel, which they did all agree on. It shows that it's not a gospel to be taught by peer pressure or embraced through groupthink. And you can trust Paul's gospel precisely because it's not the result of a religious think tank or passed down to him from the imagination of some charismatic leaders. It's the very message of God. But if it was the true message of God, why then did Paul seem to be outnumbered by these pro-Jewish law teachers? And why today is our church outnumbered by so many more churches and older churches in this area that find our gospel message out of touch and reprehensible? Well, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard put it this way. The present age thinks that the more people who rally about something, the truer it becomes, forgetting that divine revelation, if it exists, remains true whether it attracts the agreement of a million a hundred, one, or none of the human race. Did you catch that? The age in which we live, people think that the more popular an idea is, the more true it must be. But that's simply not the case. That's not how God's revelation works. It remains true if a million people believe it, a hundred people, just one person, or even if all of us got it wrong. God's revelation is still true. Because Christianity is not the product of clever thinking. 
It didn't come about from testing what message gains momentum and is popular to explain the human experience. And a day may come when every major denomination or fellowship in Canada has strayed and compromised the gospel. So we always need to remember that we don't get our doctrine from popular lectures or from hip pastors whose first goal is to appeal to culture or from the consensus of notable voices because God's truth is rarely popular. So Paul bypasses their claim to have a closer connection to the apostles in Jerusalem by stressing that if his gospel is true, he didn't need to have it result from a connection to a certain group of people. And tied together with that, he also didn't need to travel to a certain place for learning. He went into Syria and Cilicia, areas where the gospel wasn't already established. He didn't have to stay in Jerusalem for an internship. He didn't have to go to Rome or Mecca or a temple in Salt Lake City or a compound on the north side of Georgetown. You see, false gospels frequently have a hot spot that they simply demand that people pilgrimage to. And I even met some dangerously misguided missionaries who were making a trek from Asia back to Redding, California to partake in the special anointing that was supposedly descending in a glory cloud within the sanctuary of a megachurch there. No, no friends. God's message doesn't need to be handed down to us from the leaders of an inner circle or infused by initiation at some sacred hotspot. Rather, Paul's story, and perhaps yours as well, shows that God's gospel can find us anywhere. And all we need to understand it accurately is God's spirit and God's word, the Bible at work among God's people. God's gospel is not the result of groupthink, creative brainstorming, or forced indoctrination. That being said, God's gospel, precisely because it is true, does link us to a worldwide fellowship of true believers that by God's grace has persisted down through every generation. And we see how that was true for Paul in verses 22 to 24. Here's our fourth point, that God's gospel creates Godward celebration. It creates celebration. He writes, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So the churches around Jerusalem didn't know Paul personally because his gospel didn't originate from an association with the leaders there. But even not having met Paul, they still celebrated him. And certainly, I mean, it was in part because he had been such a notable enemy of theirs previously. But it's also true that wherever the gospel is embraced, a celebration occurs among God's people. Note that they're not celebrating Paul per se. They're glorifying God because of Paul. Thank you, God, that you even have power over our enemies. Thank you, God, that your mercy knows no bounds. But even the foremost of evildoers can be rescued by your gospel. Paul's conversion reminded them of how precious the good news was that had transformed their own lives as well. And his story gave them courage and hope for the trials ahead. 
This celebration on the part of the other Christians who didn't even know him is a final evidence that Paul does indeed have God's gospel, not a man-made one. Because you see, man-made gospels always give glory to people. They always draw attention to our own performance, our own appearance, our own hard work, our own piety. Even though God is the supposed object of our worship, he strangely gets left out of the equation as people come to revere us and not him. Are you getting glory for how you go about life? Are others enamored with your holiness or your doctrinal discernment or your ability to contribute in various spheres of church life? If so, it's possible that you're adding to the gospel, just like these Judaizers were. You're drawing glory to yourself instead of being open about your failures and ongoing weaknesses, as Paul was. You're letting your life tell only half of the story, which is your put-togetherness, without a window into your natural brokenness and ongoing need for grace. You're placing confidence in the flesh, which then leads others to do the same. Instead, those whose lives are centered on God's gospel are able to offer their own verse 23 story. Their testimony, like like Paul's, gives glory to God. For some of you, like Paul, that will mean telling openly of all the false and twisted things you pursued, but which you now count as rubbish compared to the gift of being found in Christ. For others, it might be something like, you know, I grew up in the church and I was always a good kid, but reached a time when God's word showed me how evil and self-righteous my natural inclinations really were. From that time on, I rely on Jesus every day, and he keeps me in peace and joy as I remember that it's his goodness, not my own, that gives my life eternal security, purpose, and meaning. So what about you? Can you say today that you don't care about pleasing men because your life is built solely around God's good news? Is your gospel like Paul's, coming from God, causing transformation, conforming to no groupthink, and creating Godward celebration? Or is there some other message that you're building your life around? Is that message the product of your own making? Does it have you stuck in a hard place? Does it require that you pander to the expectations of others? Does it glorify yourself when you succeed? Does it devastate you when you don't? Pastor Mark Dever asks this helpful question. What makes you feel good about yourself? Think about that for a second. What genuinely makes you feel good about yourself? A productive day at work? Your children's growth and success? your significant other's care and affection, the admiration of colleagues, your parents' approval, consistent quiet times, the ability to articulate your theology well. If you find the answer to what makes you feel good about yourself, you'll be close to finding what causes you to confuse the gospel. And, Dever says, there will be something here for every one of us. Because we, can, we constantly tell ourselves subconsciously that, you know, if I can just control and improve something, maybe my diet or my finances or my involvement at church, 
or the cleanliness of my house or my career path or my children or my relationships or my Bible knowledge, then I'll be acceptable. Then I'll be a good person. If I can win this person's love or reach a certain level of affluence or recognition in my art, then my identity will be secure. But these are all man-made gospels. They're all the result of human invention. They were not revealed by God because they indulge instead of crucify the flesh. It feels good to earn status. It feels good to prove your intellect or your morality or your wisdom or skill. It feels good to starve yourself to look thinner or to abuse your body to achieve unnatural athletic prowess. It feels good to win the acceptance of various types of people. But those are not paths to life or joy or peace. God's gospel is utterly unique. It doesn't come by natural means, appealing to what feels manageable by us, or indulging our own sense of achievement. Rather, it comes by supernatural revelation, and it humbles us by giving us what we could never manufacture on our own, true personhood, true identity, true life to the fullest as we lose our lives as we knew them in order to find our lives in him. So trust in this gospel and don't add to it. It doesn't rely on knowing the right people or finding the sacred place to learn. This message of Christ taking our sin and giving us his righteousness, it transforms lives and it leaves God's footprint in a society that doubts his power. It brings him glory, not us. And Paul's sincerest wish for the Galatian churches and my sincerest wish for us is that we would no longer live by our own merit and goodness, that we'd no longer feel crushed by our own failure and badness, but we'd simply live free, the recipients of God's truly good news. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you again for Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross and his victorious resurrection from the dead. In that event, we find our only hope, not in anything else that we could build our lives around. So clarify that gospel in each of our lives. Cause us to share in your joy. In Christ's name, amen.